know who they are in Christ. When we are saved by God's grace, we become children of God. And the problem is, is that sometimes we assume that because someone's born into a certain family that they know who they are intrinsically before you tell them. But we know from our own personal families that when our children are born, they are babes, and then they grow a little bit older, and then they grow a little bit older. And we could very easily have children that are nothing like us if we never tell them who we are, if that makes any sense. So Lucy, at her age, she's three years old, she's going to have an affinity to learn how to lie because it's expedient. It's something that helps her get away with stuff and maybe helps her to be able to do things that we wouldn't normally let her do. But at some point, we have to teach her that lying is not okay. And she's going to say, why not? And we're going to explain to her because we are a family that desires for our children to follow Jesus. That's our identity. And so because of that, God's standard is that we don't tell lies. But here's the problem. Our parents aren't always around anymore. So if the rule is we don't lie because we are, our parents don't lie and then our parents aren't around anymore, we go, well, I can lie now because they're not around. But if our identity is in someone that does not ever leave us or forsake us, then we don't lie because we want to please the one who sees all and we want to please him because he's our savior. He died for us. And so we explain to her, your identity is not a liar, but you are a new creation in Christ. Now, she has to make that decision on her own. But Paul is writing here to people who have already decided to follow Jesus. And because they've decided to follow Jesus, they have a new identity. They have a new citizenship. They are citizens of the kingdom of God that are left here as foreigners, but living in this land that is not our home yet. And so Paul explains to them who they are in Christ so they can know how to live in this land that they live in right now. Now, I don't know about you guys, but many times I do not consider myself a citizen of another kingdom. I, I feel like I'm a citizen of the United States. When in all reality, I have kind of a dual citizenship. One citizenship is in the United States or a Missourian or an Arcadia Valiant. Valiant, that's not a word. But in all reality, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God because Jesus paid it all so that I could be brought near to him. But the problem is, is that I can't see, taste, or touch that kingdom. It's a kingdom I'm living for that I have not yet received. And so how do I live in this land when I'm really a citizen of a different kingdom? And so Paul gets into all of that. But what he talked about last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, was he talked about salvation. Salvation is the point at which our new life begins. We've been saved by God's grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone would brag about it. It's not something that we could earn. It's not something that we could provide for ourselves. It's something that strictly God has done for us because we were dead, is what he said, in our sins and trespasses. We were corpses, not zombies up walking around, but corpses that had no power over sin, had no new life, and had no eternal life. So verse 1 through 10, he talked about how salvation... He talked about the salvation of sinners in general. But this week, he's going to talk about salvation and how it pertains to everyone else's relationship with us. In particular, he talks about the Gentiles. 
So in verse 11, he starts talking about something that probably most of us haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about. He talks about Gentiles. Now, I don't know if anybody in here has any lineage that comes from Israelite blood, but I'm going to venture to say that most of us are Gentiles. We're not Jews. We don't come from the descendants of Abraham, although many of us, because we believe in Jesus, we are descendants of Abraham by faith, not by flesh. And so he talks about the fact that there is enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, enmity is a word that simply means war or division or strife. And so there's this group called the Jews. They are a nation that God set apart. They are descendants of Abraham. And if you look at Genesis chapter 1 through 11, you see mankind being created from one couple, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, from that point, they walked with God in the garden And from the point that they started walking, they were with God, and they spoke with God, and they were in His presence at all times. But what happened? They sinned against God, and because they sinned against God, they were separated. They rebelled against Him, and they started this broken relationship between them and God. They were taken out of the Garden of Eden, separated from the presence of God. And then if you look at Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel were their children, and Cain and Abel were separated by sin. Again, the common denominator. So when Cain and Abel had this little uh, sibling rivalry, they hated one another. Next thing you know, Cain kills Abel. They were already separated, but when Cain lived out what he thought about his brother, he killed him. And they were separated because of sin too. And so you could see this cycle that didn't start like three generations in. It started at the beginning. It all started because they rebelled against God's command. And so sin separates us and it breaks our relationships with others. First and foremost, our relationship with the Lord. Secondly, it breaks our relationship with others. And so if you look at the Ten Commandments, you see that the first few are about man and his relationship with God. And then the last ones are about man and his relationship with his fellow man. And so our relationship with God should affect our relationship with human beings. And I love that because that got prayed this morning. That's, that's God's heart. If our relationship was right with him, and this is a good litmus test, or I'll call it a dipstick for our spiritual lives, just changed my oil yesterday. If you want to know if the oil is in there, you pull the dipstick out and you look at it, and then you check it again because it might be wrong, but you want to make sure there's enough oil in there. Otherwise, what happens to the engine? It burns up. And so the same way for our spiritual life is one way, and it is simpler than we make it. We can know that we're right with God as we look at our relationships with human beings around us, and if they're jacked up, more than likely, it's because we have a problem in between us and God. And that's a hard thing because we just got done spending our holidays with our families, right? And so we look at our relationship with our family members and then we always blame everyone else. But as believers in Christ, if we don't have relationships that have been reconciled, I'm not saying perfect, but at least at the very, mo- at the very least are cordial and, and are respectful and loving, even though we may not agree with everything they say, It's more than likely due to the fact that it's not their fault 
but it's actually ours because we have a relationship with a God who reconciled us with himself while we were still sinning against him. He is the one that makes peace between those who are at war. And he is the king of peace. And so all that said, what I wanted to talk about is how this set of verses starts in verse 11 through verse 12 is Paul writes and he talks about separation. And he talks about what the Gentiles were. They were separated from, they were without Christ. They were without citizenship. They were without the promises of God. They were without hope. And they were without God completely. And because they rejected God, all of humanity starting with one God and slowly over time rejecting God and so they started worshiping other gods. We didn't start with a bunch of false gods and then find out, oh, this is the one true God. But actually humanity started with God revealing himself to man through Adam and Eve, them rejecting his commands, and because of that, they were blinded to sin. They were blinded to that separation. And over time, they started serving other gods, trying to fill that void that was there when they were broke, had their relationship broken with God. And so in verse 11, he says, Therefore... Remember, when there's a therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. He's just talked about salvation for sinners in general in verse 1 through 10. Since God has provided salvation, verse 4 said, but God who is rich in mercy. Verse 1 through 3 said, we were having problems. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We gave ourselves over to sin. We couldn't change that. We fulfilled our own desires. And because of that, there was brokenness. But then in verse 4, he said, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You've been raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We'll actually get to sit with him on the throne for eternity. He says that in the ages to come, he might basically point to us as a witness of how gracious he truly is. And then in verse 8, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast, for we are his workmanship. We're his poema. We're his masterpiece. We've been created new in Christ Four good works. <coughs> Notice he says, not by good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, in light of that truth, he says, remember that you, he's writing to the Ephesian church, primarily pagans, heathens, Gentiles, not the nation that God set up to be his nation that's set apart for his use to bring Jesus through as the Messiah, the Savior, but everyone else in the world. Now, if you look at, on a map and you see the nation of Israel, you look at the amount of people that are in the nation of Israel, you go, of the whole world, he chose this tiny nation that really isn't that great. He didn't pick them because they were great. He picked them because he wanted to show the world how great that he is. And so it says there, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision, what is called the, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, 
What's circumcision? All right, probably most of us know that. We have sons, right? But he's talking about this covenant that God made. He said, you're going to be set apart from all the other nations, Abraham. So I want you to circumcise your children on the eighth day. Well, he did that because they were going to be different. And it was a cleanliness thing. And we still use circumcision today as an operation after, after our sons are born because it, it's an easier way to keep them clean. We'll leave it at that. You know what I mean. But they were to, called to be a clean nation. But they started boasting about, hey, we're the circumcision. God chose us. We're different than you. And kind of, instead of being a light and showing that God was going to make a difference through them in the world, they ended up basically saying, hey, God chose us, so heck with you guys. And we can do that as the church if we're not careful. But he says, you who are called the uncircumcision, you pagans, you Gentiles, You are called that by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Notice that. That's a a word meaning bankruptcy. You were without. You know, you got the haves and the have-nots. You were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise made, excuse me, having no hope and without God in the world. He's talking to these Ephesians, and he's saying, you guys were pagans. You didn't have the promises of God. You didn't have the oracles of Scripture, the, the law and the, the Old Testament. You didn't, God didn't promise you anything. What he did was he made promises to Israel. And so he says, you didn't have a, a dog in the fight. You didn't have a stake to the claim. He says, but now, and look at that. He says, but now in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, look back up to verse 4. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, he told them about their poverty. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now go back down to verse uh, 13. He says, You were without hope. You were Gentiles. God didn't promise you anything. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, think about this. The Jews could not approach the mercy seat. They could not approach the worship place of God without blood, without The shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin, even in the Old Testament. They had to kill an animal. They had to take certain parts and lay them in the altar. A priest had to do it. And then they were burned up as an offering to the Lord. And then, and only then, could they approach the seat of God. But the Gentiles had none of that. They didn't have a sacrificial system. They didn't have a priest. They didn't have a temple They didn't have a promise from God that if they approached, they wouldn't be killed. If a priest, even a Jewish priest, if he approached the the dwelling place of God and he was not ceremonially cleansed and making the right sacrifices, many times they would go in there and if their heart wasn't right, guess what happened? They were smoked in the presence of God because God is holy. So you, you can only approach God if you're a certain person, if you have the right sacrifice, and all of these things. 
So now, because of what Christ has done, he is our high priest, and he's the sacrifice, pure sacrifice, because of what he has done on the cross, breaking down that wall of separation, you who once were far off, not even allowed into the temple, Gentiles were not. They were allowed into the court of the Gentiles. It's a huge building. And as you went towards the center, only certain people, and then only certain people, and then only certain people were let into the Holy of Holies. But now because of what Christ has done, guess who can come in? Anybody that comes in Christ. Anybody that comes through a relationship with basically the VIP, you know? Hey, how come you can get in? I know Jesus. You know, you don't have to pay extra money to get to meet the band. You don't have to pay extra money to, be, to meet the team or get the autograph. You just walk in and you go, hey, I'm here and Jesus is my guy. And they go, oh, come on in. You want something to drink? Like there's all these benefits because we are in Christ because of his death. And so the key word there in that particular part was without we start by being without, and then we get to the next part in verse 13 through 18, and we see, but God, but God, and the key word in verse 13 through 18 is enmity. We talked about that already. Enmity is war. It's the opposite of peace. It's the opposite of shalom. So as we get in there and we have, <coughs> excuse me, we are no longer at war with God, it's because God has dealt with the war we had against him. Now think about it. Think about it. We just got done with Thanksgiving tournament, right? And I liked your story because, I mean, that is the truth. When you sit in the stands at any tournament or at any baseball game, whether it's the World Series or whether, I mean, think about it. When I got on the L train 20 years ago in Chicago, had a Cardinals hat on, there was some enmity there. You know, I got cussed like a dog, and I wasn't even really that into sports. I just had a hat on. But because of that hat, I was identified as a Cardinals fan, right? And so I get on the L train in Chicago, and they identify as Chicago fans. Not just any Chicago fan, Chicago Cubs. And I'm six blocks away, and this guy gets on, he's all belligerent, but he starts mouthing me. Okay, so here's the deal. I can either engage or I can say, hey, I'm not really of that, you know. But the reality is, is any, any sport, in any identification, it causes there to be some boundary lines. Whether you're a Cubs fan, Cardinals fan, whether you're a uh, Rams fan or a Lambs fan, you know, wh- whether, whether you hate the Lambs now because they left or because you, or you love them and you can't stand that they left, or election season, right? You could not talk about the election, and you still can't, without people getting up in arms one way or the other. Now, if you're on the same side as the person you're sitting next to and you bring up politics, it's all high fives. Hey, great. Or, if you're like the opposite, uh, we can't even be in the same table together. Well, it's the abomination that causes desolation. I can't believe that you could vote. I can't believe that, oh my gosh, and next thing you know, Thanksgiving dinner is a melee, Right? I, and that was all over the news. I wonder how people are going to handle Thanksgiving dinner. Are they going to talk politics? Neither one of my families did. You know, it was just one of the, we're all sick of it, you know. 
But my point is, is that there is enmity for all kinds of different reasons all over the world. And sometimes the enmity is because you identify or you are a different culture that this one doesn't understand. And so because of that, we hate each other, right? Look at the Jews and the Ishmaelites, the Muslims. Look at them for years, killing themselves, holy war. Look at the Nazis and the Jews. Look at all kinds of different groups that hate each other. And Jesus said, just hating someone is murder in your heart. Now, did, did God call apart this Jewish nation so that they would hate others? No, he wanted them to be a light to the world. And instead of taking that opportunity, they were not a light to the world. They ended up actually uh, scorning the entire world and saying, hey, we're better than you. But we have enmity with God. So there are two types of enmity we read about here in verse 13 through verse 18. There is enmity between Jews and Gentiles. And more importantly, there is enmity between sinners and God. So uh, we have enmity, and that's the opposite of peace. We need reconciliation to deal with enmity. What brings our peace? And so let's just read these verses. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Notice over and over again, the key word here is one. He says in verse 14, who has made both one, and then in verse uh, 15, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, putting to death the war. It's no longer supposed to be there. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one, there's that word again, one spirit to the Father. So in verse 13, we have this struggle with enmity, and he talks about how when enmity or war is taken away, there is oneness. And so uh, you can look at this in, in several different ways. He's looking with Jews and Gentiles, being made one. Look at uh, the Apostle Paul. We're reading his writings here. But before he was a Christian, what was he? He was a Jew. He, not only was he a Jew, but he was a Jewish of the Jew of the Jew. Like he was a Sadducee, or he was a Pharisee. And so he was like the most elite level you could get to. And many believe he was actually on the Sanhedrin, the same council that actually condemned Jesus to death. And so he was on that council that was a ruler spiritually over the nation of Israel. And so when he became a believer in Christ, all of a sudden he wanted to proclaim the same faith that he was trying to kill. And so the Jews hated him because they were like, hey, you've left us. And now you're proclaiming this thing that we see as blasphemy. 
And then on top of that, the Christians still hated him because they thought he was going to try and he was like being a spy and he was acting like a Christian so he could find out that they were Christians and drag them out of their homes and have them imprisoned. And so he was a man without a family, right? But there were certain people like Barnabas and Ananias, people that came along that God used to basically uh, be an interceder or be an intermediary, and they would come in and go, no, no, this guy's a no-kidding Christian now. Like, it's okay. He's not going to drag you away. He loves the Lord. God blinded him, and they tell the whole story about how God humbled him on the way to Damascus. But you see, here's the deal. Anytime you see two nations or two people or two types of people or two religions or, or, or even broken families, when there is brokenness, there takes time to heal, right? So when Jesus comes along and he dies for the sins of the whole world, and then we are now one in Christ, we get that, but there's almost like a time where we need to have some rehabilitation. We got to start thinking differently. We got to let our our emotions kind of cool down, and then let the facts start ruling things rather than our feelings. And and I see that because I used to uh, used to watch Mash quite avidly. And aside from the tomfoolery and all the jokes and the kidding, there was a very real war that the movie Ma- or the TV show Mash was about. They were working the surgical hospital. But there were two nations, and even more than that, really involved in this police action. We call it a war because we know that people died and there was no policing going on. But when that war was over and there was a peace treaty signed, did everybody like start high-fiving and dancing in the streets together? No. Actually, because they never really recognized the peace, there is still a wall built there, I think, called the 38th Parallel, right? And there's this division between North and South Korea that because there's a peace agreement and yet there's no peace, really, because North Korea closed themselves off to the rest of the country. And so many times, Paul's writing this, he's saying, look, there is no longer any war between the Jew and the Gentile. And what he's going to get to is there is no longer any war between sinners and God. But many times, because we know that there's a peace treaty, and yet we don't really live by that peace treaty, the wall remains and there's no communication and there's no peace actually from the agreement. And so he says, um, basically in this passage, he says, we are all made one in Christ. God did this he, so he might reconcile them both to God in one body. Do you know what it means to reconcile? We talked about how um, enmity is this division or this brokenness in a relationship. But what Christ did in this brokenness that is more than the size of the Grand Canyon, this gap between God and sinners, is he bridged the gap. And he himself is the bridge. And so his picture his arms. I've seen memes like that before where basically Jesus' arms are between God and man, sinful man and holy God. And he's, of course, in the shape of a cross. And we get to... Basically walk across that deal, go back and forth. So God has made this broken situation and he's mended it and he pulls it together by his death. And so um, in Christ we are made one body by his death. 
And I love what Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says. It says, Therefore, because of what Christ has done, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It levels the playing field for every person. And I love that because many times, if you read in Scripture, the Jews didn't look at it as a level playing field. So really the bigger division is verse 16 through 18, the war between sinners and God. This is the biggest gap that really needed to be bridged. It was never about Jew and Gentile. It was never about the barbarians and the Scythians. If you look at Old Testament or uh, old history, it was never about those who were from Abraham's line and, and everyone else. It was always about mankind. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus said that. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He never lists uh, a culture. He never says American Indians and not the Southeast uh, uh, Asia Indians. He, it's, it's all one. A Jew and Gentile really have more in common than we, they or we might realize. They had a different religion, but they had the same problem to deal with. We're both sinners in need of God's salvation. In the New Testament, one of the biggest issues that the early church fought with in the book of Acts was, hey, can Gentiles be Christians? Or do they have to become Jews first and then become Christians? And I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said it was never a question of the Gentile become Jewish to become a Christian, but the Jew admitting he was also a sinner just like the Gentile. The whole point of the Old Testament law was to help the Jewish people be different, but the difference was instead of just going on sinning and acting like it wasn't happening, the Jewish people had a system to deal with their sin so they could in fact have a relationship with God. And they were supposed to share that with the rest of the world. And I love what Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says. It says, there's no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the same law that the Jews had that really made them different than the rest of the world made a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, the clean and the unclean. It also made a separation between sinful man and a holy God. So you could be a Jew... You could live in the covenant and the promises of God. You could be with all of this revelation in Scripture and still be without hope because you didn't have a heart that was really right towards God. And in the same way, people can go to church day in and day out every week. They can spend time praying even. They can read the Bible every day, but they can miss the God of the Bible and not have a heart that's really right towards God. It's a dangerous thing. We can fool ourselves by our own religion. And so what God does is he says, hey, be careful. Check yourself. See if you're really in the faith or if you're just doing something because you've always done it. We live in a land of tradition, right? I mean, I was thinking about that the other day as we're eating Thanksgiving dinner. I've heard so many people say, hey, go eat with your family. Act like everything's fine. And to some degree, that's wise counsel. You know, hey, get together, have a meal together, realize you're all human. But the other side of it is, is that sometimes we get together and we do just act like we love each other. It happens in families all the time. So how do we deal with that? Well, I don't think that the, the answer is to go to Thanksgiving dinner and start wailing on people uh, with your words and, hey, I've had a problem with you since last year and I want to talk to you about it now. 
Does that fix the war or does that add to it? Or we can die to ourselves, pray for that person, ask the Lord to give us an opportunity to talk to them, and then if you really do have something where they've sinned against you, take them one-on-one and say, hey, we got an issue here and I'm willing to forgive and I hope you're willing to forgive and humbly approaching somebody, reconciliation comes through death. We were reconciled to God through him dying on our behalf, and in the same way, we can die for someone else. I don't mean physically die. I mean be willing to concede that maybe I was part of the problem too. So Jesus has done that for us, and so it should change the way we interact with others. So in order to deal with this war that we had between us and God, because of sin and rebellion, Jesus bore our sin, our guilt, and our shame on the cross, and he made peace for us by shedding his blood in our place. So, verse 14 says, Jesus Christ is our peace. You want peace? It's Jesus. He is the answer. It's not just the Sunday school answer. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is our peace. If you're going through a family war, if you're going through a spiritual war, if you don't get around along with your coworkers, if your job stinks and you're tired of it, whatever it might be that you struggle with, a broken relationship, you will not have peace without Jesus reigning over that situation. You have to give it to him. Verse 15, Jesus Christ is the, one, the only one who made peace. Verse 17, Jesus Christ preached and he proclaimed peace. And he proclaimed it to people that didn't have it. So, the last section, verse 19. He says, now therefore, since Jesus has done all this. Remember the first section started talking about how we were without. We were without Christ as Gentiles. We were without citizenship as pagans, not a nation like Israel. We were without God's promises. We were without hope. And we were without God. That's the reality. Interestingly enough, if you read Acts chapter 17, when Paul gets to Athens, which is a, 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 a city very close to Ephesus, Athens was kind of a cultural center. He says that the pagans were without God, and yet when he shows up in Acts chapter 17, they had many gods. They had many gods. He walked around the city and he goes, I noticed that you are a very religious people. Look at all these gods you have. And he actually starts to preach to them about the God that they do not know because they were so religious that they actually had a statue in the middle of their city that said, to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. They're trying to make sure they appeased all the gods. And so Paul wrote to them and he said, basically, he spoke to them and he said, I know this God that you do not know. And he actually is the creator of life and breath and everything that we have. Now, there were some people that believed him. There were some people that said, well, we'll talk to you later about this. And there were some people that were like, this guy's foolish. But the point is, is that when we say that the Gentiles or the pagans, everyone from, that wasn't from the nation of Israel, were without a God. It does not mean that they did not have many gods. It means they didn't know the true and living God. So in, the, in verse 19 through 22, it says, now, th- now though, even though you were without all these things, therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. And that's the main thing. They were strangers and foreigners without God and without citizenship. But now, because of what Jesus has done, verse 19 says, you are no longer strangers. 
you are no longer foreigners, but instead you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, when you read the word saint, what do you think of? In certain uh, churches, I use that word widely, when they say saint, it means someone who has died and during their life they had performed a couple miracles. And many times they'll actually put them up in stained glass afterwards, you know, as a (laughs) memorial to the saints. But when Paul writes to the Ephesians and many of the other churches, he actually calls them saints and they're not dead yet. So biblically, saints aren't just dead people. Biblically, saints are alive people who are in Christ. So he says there, he says, you've been made fellow citizens with the saints, implying that you, in fact, are saints because you trust in Jesus. And members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. How many of you guys in here have ever done any building or construction? You've seen buildings go up, and before you ever build a building, if you want it to stay there any amount of time, you dig down and you find some bedrock, or at least something really sturdy, and you start digging for the footings, right? It's got to have a foundation. If it's going to be a basement house, it definitely has to go down deep. I don't know that there's too many or a whole bunch of basement houses that go very deep around here. There's so much rock, right? But my point is, is that it has to start with a foundation. Otherwise, down the road, things are going to shift around, and next thing you know, your house is going to fail, or it's going to have holes in it. It's going to break. So he says this faith that we have is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Everything that they spoke of and taught, it's foundational truths. But those foundational truths are no good if they don't have one thing that holds them together, and that's Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone. And so he says, our lives need to be built on this foundation that's found in Scripture that's been spoken of by the prophets who were all speaking of Jesus and the apostles who were given authority to write Scripture. That's what we're reading right now. But they are all made one because they are all tied together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. And if you know anything about foundations, if you look at some of the older buildings around here and you see that cornerstone, it's, it's the most expensive stone. It's the most square and straight stone. And it's a large stone. But when the, the, everything is built from the cornerstone on and it holds the building together, it's an important piece. He says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So God in the past has decided to dwell among his people. Okay, In the desert, in the wilderness, he was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud if you read the Exodus account. And then at one point, he said, I will meet with you in the tabernacle, Moses. And then at a certain point, they started building this tabernacle that was no longer just a meeting place, but it was a place where sacrifices would be made. And then God chose to dwell in a temple that was built and dedicated around 1 Kings chapter 8 by Solomon. It was this permanent dwelling place in Jerusalem. 
But that temple was destroyed. So before the temple was destroyed, though, the Spirit of God dwelled in Jesus Christ. Jesus came down to the earth. He was born as a child. He was born, and then he was circumcised, and then he was dedicated to the Lord. Then he was baptized, and when he was baptized, we see the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a, Holy, like, like a dove, and he indwells Jesus Christ. So from that point on, the Holy Spirit dwelled in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God dwelled in a person. And what did we do with that temple where God dwelled? He was nailed to a tree. He was killed. But Jesus had promised after his death that he would ascend to the Father and then he would send the Holy Spirit to descend upon us and to fill all of those who came to God by faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit now dwells no longer in a temple or in a building, but the Holy Spirit dwells in the church of God, a building that is being built up. Not a building like this, not First Baptist down the street, not First Baptist in Pilot Knob, not any of the churches that you've seen that have been the most beautiful buildings in the world, but God's promise was that He would dwell in you and I. He would take these dead, broken stones, these and, and then he would raise them up and make living stones from them. He would fit them together as a building, a spiritual building, and then his presence would reside in the Holy of Holies, which is no longer uh, this building within a building within a building, but now he resides within you and I. And I can't get over that because there are many days where I think things, where I say things, where I do things, and really, you know what should happen to me because of those things? Well, what happened to the priest that would go in without his heart right? I should be smoked right there. Done. But what God does is in his grace, he dwells in me. He transforms me. He fills me with his spirit. And so the question becomes, now that we are made one nation, one family, one temple, according to verse 19 through 22, uh, why was he talking about a temple? Well, for the Jews that were reading this in Ephesus, they would think about the temple that's in Jerusalem. And for those who are in Ephesus, they would think about the temple of Diana. They would think about this pagan temple, this building that they could see that's huge and glorious and beautiful. And in it dwells people that are worshiping. But the crazy thing is, is consider this, as we look at these two different buildings, they were buildings that were destined to be torn down. They were not eternal buildings. But the building that Christ is building up through his church is an eternal building that God will always reside in because he's an eternal kingdom. He's an eternal ruler. The temple that Jesus is building with you and I, with living stones, is going to last forever. And what I want you to consider as we look at the unification in Christ is that God has not only saved us individually, but he's also made us a part of his church collectively built together. So, two questions. Number one, have you recognized that at some point that you were separated from God, just like the beginning of today's passage? You were separated from Him by sin, without hope, without Christ, without citizenship, without promises, and without God. Have you personally decided to and made the decision to trust in Christ for your peace with God, to end the war that was between you and Him? Jesus doesn't save people that are good with them. He saves sinners, of which 
Paul wrote, I am chief. So if he was chief of all sinners, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm pretty up there as far as that's concerned. So number one, it's an individual thing that leads to a relationship with him that really leads to a relationship with his people. But number two, if you have trusted in Christ, here's my question for you. Are you helping others to trust him? Whether it's in the body of Christ or those who are still where we once were without God, without hope, without citizenship, without new life. And I like how uh, Warren Wiersbe put it. He said, Jesus Christ died to make reconciliation possible. That we were far from God and we were brought near. He died to make that possible. You and I must live to make the message of reconciliation personal. He made it possible. We have to make it personal. We are his messengers. We're his ambassadors. We are the ones who have received it. No one else can tell the world about it because they don't know it. They don't have it. But since we've received the gift, we get to tell everybody else that the gift exists and that they can have it too. So, are you his messengers? Are you being his ambassadors? Are you living out the calling that God has given his church? So let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we were bankrupt spiritually, practically, Lord, you came to us and you provided everything that we needed. We were without citizenship. We didn't have any hope. Uh, we didn't have you. We were separated from you because of our sins. But I love that you didn't let that distance or that bankruptcy stop you from reaching down to us, for getting involved in our situation not only providing a, a, a way to get right with you, but being the way to get right with you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your willingness to die on my behalf and of all of us here. I pray that we would truly recognize the riches that we've been given because of all that you have done. And Father, help us not to hold that to ourselves. Lord, when we become less and less like the world, we do the world the most good. I've heard it said so many times that certain people are so heavenly minded that they're of no worldly good. And yet, Lord, unless we are heavenly minded, we can be of no heavenly good. So, Father, I pray, use us as a mighty force. Use us as citizens of your kingdom. Use us as your children to talk about you with the people that we know so that they can know that during this season and during every season, that they have the opportunity <laughs> to have peace with God. And because of that, they can have peace with one another. Father, truly, make this a season of peace for us as a church and for those that we know. Lord, help us to share the message of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Thank you that you began it, and thank you that you are the one who is faithful to complete it. Lord, loosen our mouths and help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.